Welcome to Rogue Bogues. This is episode six of the My Journey series. Thanks for joining us again. This one is going to be about my sophomore year at the University of Utah. So that covers the 2004-2005 college season for me personally, playing with the University of Utah, running Utes. So this podcast, this episode uh, specifically is going to be a little bit different than we have um, had the last five My Journeys. So I managed to secure two guests for my sophomore year to, to chat about everything that's going on. So instead of me going through everything, um, then hearing two individuals covering the same kind of points, it might uh, bore a lot of you to hear the same thing three times. So just quickly, um, I, I will welcome back Cody Fieger, who was on the My Journey episode four, discussed my freshman year. He was the team manager. For those who haven't listened to that episode, I encourage you to do so, so you get a bit of um, feel for who he is and how he was involved in, in my in my college journey and, and beyond. But basically, this season was a transition period. We have gone from um, Rick Majerus, very hard-nosed coach, to someone who we thought w- was going to take over in Kerry Rupp, who was the head assistant, not to be a gentleman by the name of Ray Giacoletti, Giacoletti, however different people pronounce it, but um, generally it's Giacoletti. And he was hired out of uh, the University of Eastern Washington, a small school that punched above their weight the season before we hired him and didn't know anything about him, didn't know who he was, uh, kind of going in blind. I think Cody was in a similar situation. So a big transition for, for not only myself, but Cody, um, going from working for a guy like Rick Majerus, basically being his personal assistant to, to now a fresh-faced um, college coach who was you know, the first time um, was the head of a, a bigger program than he'd ever been. So, a little bit of um, nervousness there from Ray, Ray Giacoletti, but uh, did a fantastic job as we'll discuss. But um, I will leave you with part two of the interview with Cody regarding my sophomore year. So, here that is. So, welcome back, Cody Fieger again. Uh, we're going to talk about my sophomore year. It was obviously a transition from Rick Majerus. Welcome, Cody. What's up, Bogues? Happy to be on here, man. This is awesome. Again, you get two parts, man. You're big time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, I was, I was around for a couple of great years of your life, man, and we're still really close to this day. So that's it. And, and another tidbit I've got to mention: I was part of the groomsmen at your wedding. So that was um, yeah, not too long after that. I, I can't remember what year. I'm sure. I hope you know the year. It was what 06, 07, 08, somewhere around there. 2008. Yeah, you uh, you flew out for basically. Yep three days and Australia. I, yeah it was off season I don't know how much you slept during that time but you stayed up stayed up through the night for most of the time and slept during the day yeah we had some fun we had some fun but um I guess that off season was interesting because we we went from Rick Majerus Kerry Rupp took over and we had a successful end to that year made the tournament so we all thought that that Kerry Rupp was the front runner to to get that job and and we all went to bat for him with with Chris Hill when we met with the athletic director and as I'm sure you probably did as well we thought Kerry Rupp was the right guy but I guess something out of left field was the University of Utah had decided to to bring someone new in I guess they probably didn't want uh, Majerus disciple to remain they probably wanted to just you know, a clean, fresh slate, which is totally understandable. Um, I think Kerry, Kerry Rupp was qualified to take that job, but they just wanted to to wash off that Majerus pass with everything going on with the potential investigation. So I was at the Olympics. Leading into that Olympics, we hire a gentleman by the name of Ray Giacoletti or Giacoletti, and he was at the University of Eastern Washington, a smaller school, won a lot of games there and he came in and I was, I was honestly, as you know, I was at a crossroad of coming back to University of Utah. I felt like... 
I was kind of sold a lemon with everything I'd expected coming in. You know, at times under Coach Majerus, at least, I don't feel like I could play my natural game and, and I just lost a lot of confidence playing in that in the system sometimes with, with Coach just because of the nature of the way he coached and with freshmen. But so I was at a crossroad of do I just go pro straight to, to Europe for a year and then go to the NBA or do I enter the draft? I was I was a late first round, early second round projected pick at that point. And then, and then Ray got the job. But I think you remember the first thing that happened um, and that Ray did when he got the job, right? Yeah, the first thing uh, Coach Jack Letty did was he flew right to uh, Australia to meet with you. Or were you in the Olympics already? I was in Australia, yeah. So, he, he basically treated me as a as a recruit. Yeah, he, he, he knew that was his number one thing. Like, so he wasn't even on campus his first couple of days. He flew straight to Australia to see you and get you to come back to the University of Utah, which is the best thing he could have done, obviously. And um, I just remember that was that was top priority number one for him because I got to talk to him like just for a couple minutes right away and then he's like, I am out. I'm flying to Australia. Yeah. Yeah. And he was, I mean, it was a big difference from from obviously Coach Majerus. I mean, Ray, Coach Jack was was kind of not as experienced and didn't have the, the presence and the aura, was kind of working his way up to that. But I think the biggest thing that shocked me when he came out was you, you could just have kind of, there was no real craziness or quirkiness that, that Rick had. So it was kind of a, a nice fresh change for me. So then just the gesture, like he he really didn't have to say anything when he got to Australia, to be honest. It was just the gesture that he got on a 18, 19 hour trip one way and then back. So th- 40 hours just to look me in the face and say, we want you here. That was kind of enough for me. Yeah. I mean, that was, that's the kind of guy Coach Jack Letty is, right? You know, once he tells you something, he's going to do it. And he, uh, he was really excited about that, and that was uh, a number one, and it was an unbelievable job getting you to come back. It was awesome. Yeah, so then I go on to to play in the – I make the, the Olympic team in 2004, Athens Olympics. I didn't think I'd even – I thought I'd be in the mix. I didn't know I'd make the team, and then I end up making it. I end up starting at the, at the four spot um, at the time, and I remember going into that Olympics and – playing really well against grown men and pros and played against the USA team and Tim Duncan and, and all these guys that Rick Majerus used to talk about and, and actually held my own. I think I had 12 and 8 or something like that in Olympic games against those guys, played well. And I, I remember uh, leaving that Olympic group and just coming back to Utah and just saying like, there's no one in college basketball can guard me, no one can stop me. And I just had the mindset of being absolutely dominant because I felt like now I was coming back to play with kids. So I don't know if you noticed, but the the jump that I made coming from that off season to to my sophomore year. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I could tell just like kind of your swagger about you and just kind of like your, your your confidence coming back from the Olympics, right? Right when you came back in fall, I, I could definitely tell a, a huge difference. Just kind of kind of your approach right after that was just a little bit different, a little bit more. I mean, you always had an incredible approach to the game because you wanted to be great. But I could tell there was just like a higher IQ approach to it, I guess, you know, and I could see that right away as soon as you came back and any kind of things that, you know, Coach Jack Letty kind of talked to you about, you you took in stride right, right away. So that was, that was a pretty pretty cool deal. And, and just to see you play in those Olympics, I, I know us uh, as a team – Everybody in Utah, we kind of watched those together once in a while, and it was pretty pretty cool to watch you together. Yeah, and look, there was some growing pains. We, we chatted about it through text back and forth before we got on the pod, but there was one training session in particular. I still remember how everything went down. I was we had Luke Neville, the other Australian kid, and he was he was actually a pretty good player. He just didn't bring it every day. He'd show you what he could do once 
once a week, once every two weeks, and then the other days he'd be he wouldn't bring it. But um, I remember we had one session, and it was early on in the season, and I believe we were a team that didn't front the post ever. Like Jack Aletti just didn't like fronting. He did not like fronting the post. Which for those listeners that don't understand what that means, it means that I. I, as a defender, get in front of the post player and, and just try to deny him from catching the ball at all costs, right? So we wouldn't do that. And I remember this session, Luke Devil was kicking my ass. Like it was it was pissing me off so bad because I, you know, we have to play behind. We don't wanna, we don't wanna play, we don't wanna front. And he's hitting fadeaways, he's hitting hook shots, he's dunking it. And it was that one session where he just couldn't be stopped, right? So I got frustrated and I'm like, I gotta change something up. He's kicking my ass. So I start fronting the post. And Ray Jacoletti blows his whistle and he says, We don't front the post. And I'm like, Well, he's kicking my ass. Like, what, what, what am I supposed to do? He's like, Just stick with our team principles. And at that point, I was like, I know better than you kind of mentality, young and dumb. And I guess the next play down, he catches it and scores. I don't front. I look at the coaches, I'm like, What the fuck? Like, let me front him. So I come down and front again. He blows a whistle again. And then we have a back and forth and, and it was pretty heated. Like it was, you know, it was, I guess, a good debate at the start, but then it got, it got, you know, back and forth. And Ray Jacoletti was like, get the fuck out of here. And I was like, fuck you. And, and we went backwards and forwards. And then I, I got kicked out of practice. And it was, you know, a point where it was like, okay, I didn't really realize I was the leader of that team at that point. So it was bad from that point of view, but a bit of fire is good, but I end up going back to my apartment at the time and having to think about it. And um, we end up, yeah, we end up rehashing everything. He benched me for the next game as a, as a punishment, which was fine. But I guess that was that turning point in my sophomore year where beyond that, there was no issues after that. But I mean, I'm sure you remember that incident. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I remember that to this day. And, uh, you know, yeah, Coach Jack Letty blew that whistle and said, get, get, get out of practice. You walked out. But you came back that next day and you were by far the best teammate. I mean, you were only a sophomore. Shoot, you're a, still a 19, 19 year old at that point. So you were, you're still kind of figuring some things out. But I mean, there was, there was nothing stopping you when you came back after that. You're the best teammate I've ever seen. And, and you had all these guys believing in you after that. And then, then you're just, I mean, I know we'll talk about the season as, as we go through here, but. That was a that was the turning point for you um, that I saw at uh, your second year at Utah. Yeah, and then we, you know, for me that season was then freedom coming from from Coach Majerus and a heavy, heavy structure of what you can and can't do. To Ray Jacoletti kind of gave me the keys to the team and said, "You do you. Everyone else is going to have a bit more rules, but you you've earned your fact to to go one on one when you want." Because he came from a system that was very regimented regimented too in Eastern Washington, but he tweaked that and let me let me kind of do my thing at times, and not from a selfish point of view, but made me kind of read the play myself and attack when I wanted to. And look, we end up going. I believe we go twenty nine and six overall, thirteen and one in conference. We have a 18-game winning streak at one point in the season. I think it was leading the nation. We had a fantastic year. We go to the Sweet 16. Um, we lose to Kentucky in the Sweet 16. I still believe we were one one shooting four-man away. I mean, Justin Hawkins was real streaky, and I think at one point in that season, he was 0 for 18 or 0 for 19 from three until he hit his first shot, first three-point um, basket. But if we just had a, a standstill four-man that could shoot, it would have just given me so much more space. But it was a fantastic year. And I mean, what are, you, what are some of your memories about that run? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we won. At one point, we won. I think it was, uh, like you said, eighteen games, and we were thirteen in the country. And I mean, the fans are everywhere. You're you're leading um, the game where I was like, okay, this guy is unbelievable. Is when we were playing uh, LSU at home. If you remember that, we played, uh, and they had Big Baby and Brandon Bass, and those guys were 
really good players, right? I mean, yeah, Bass played in the NBA. Was, yeah, I think they were ranked 20, yeah. And so it was Big Baby, yeah. and you just kicked both their butts. I, I forget what you what you had that game, but you just dominated those two guys <laughs> that were supposed to be the best players basically in college basketball, and you just dominated the, those two guys basically by yourself. And um, and after that, we were just – we were rolling. The, the one hiccup we had was early was Utah State. And after that Utah State, we had to come come to Jesus meeting as a team and kind of kind of rolled through. And then we had UNLV was our first league game and we beat them by 20. And then it was just on. We were, we were kind of rolling through at that point. It was it was an unbelievable year. Um, you know, played University of Arizona at Univer- University of Arizona where we played. Salim Stoudemire was the guy, Shanning Fry and we had that game too. We were right there. I think it, we ended up losing by five or something like that. But just an incredible year. It's, um, it was one of the best years for me um, just to be a part of such a great team. And, man, you were player of the year. You know, I got to, you know, go to the award stuff with you at the Final Four. And, you know, I was just just around you all the time. So, it was a pretty, pretty neat deal for me that all these people want to talk to you and I ha- happen to be right next to you. <laughs> Yeah, and you were on the court a little bit too, which was kind of cool. You know, we, we worked a lot on my free throw shooting and, and, and different things with technique and whatnot. And you just spent some time with me after training sometimes and, and we put some extra time in with, with different things. And I remember it was it was big for you as well to be to be able to be on the court, I guess. I guess Majerus kind of, the only time he let you on the court was when you had to run sprints and he'd tell us, if uh, if Cody beats you, you're, you're doing it again. <laughs> the time you were on the court. So it was nice. That was kind of your start to, to being involved with coaching. Yeah, no, that was that was awesome for me. Just I got to shoot with you every day before and and after practice, and you wanted to do it. And any days that we weren't practicing, I'd meet you at the gym. And I mean, it was it was it was a pretty neat deal that we got to have a close bond. I mean, remember we were shooting the with Coach Jacoletti's the uh, uh, shoot for your license. Yeah. Remember the three pointers? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, Coach Jacoletti had um, you had to make a total of. Um, 35 threes out of 50 and you had to do it five times to get your license to be able to shoot threes in games. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I remember you, you know, once Coach Jack Lady put that in, you you grabbed me right away and you're like, all right, we're shooting it every day the next, you know, five days until I get it, you know, however long we're going to do it. And it took us, I think you were the first or second guy to have it done. You had it done right away though. It got done right away in five Contrary days. Contrary to belief. So I'm trying to, I try to tell yeah. people I used to shoot the three ball, but uh, no one believes me. But yeah, that was that was a tough. It was a tough drill. There was one. I mean, there was a, there were a few real good shooters that couldn't couldn't do it. It was um, some of it was standstill, some of it was movement, and you had to do it all the way through. And it was it was a pretty tough drill. I mean, and to do 35 out of 50 doesn't sound that hard, but with all the movement, you need a bit of conditioning. We had one kid, Jake Schmidt, who's still a good friend of mine, but he was a bigger kid, a, a little bit kind of battling with shape at times and he was a really good shooter but he'd be 25 for 30 and then those last 20 his legs would just be fried and he would he wouldn't get it he couldn't get it the whole season and um yeah it was a pretty interesting drill yeah no i i always like that drill and I, I do that sometimes with our players right now just to change it up with different different drills yeah it was it was that one and then um that year i don't know if you uh told anybody this but all these college guys thinks that think they have it so hard you were the player of the year and before you were the player of the year you were working at skybox which was in downtown salt lake city at the mall and um 
you were uh what was your job there oh you my were god a, man uh, i was it was first off it was my fault because i was freshman year i lived on campus everything taken care of swipe card to the to the eating area the meal the meal heritage center where you get all your meals don't pay a bill don't see a bill and here i was trying to be a hero that sophomore year and thinking moving off ca- moving off campus is a great idea because you get a you get a I think my check ended up being less than everyone else's because I got taxed for being international students. So I ended up getting $600 US a month, which then had to cover petrol, insurance, and um, and my rent. My rent was $375, so it left me with $200. So I got like, I think a month into the preseason, I'm like, holy shit, I have no money. <laughs> I can't pay my rent. So I'm like, what am I supposed to do? So I went to, I, I still remember this. I went to Ray, Ray Giacoletti and I'm like, I have no money. I messed up. I moved off campus. I said, I need some money. I need something. Like, I need you to help me out. And he's like, we can't do that. It's illegal. I'm not doing it. I said, can you at least get me a meal pass so I can at least eat at the at the Heritage Center? So he looked into it for me and, and he's like, look, that would be illegal because you're living off campus. So I'm like, fuck. So he ends up contacting a booster of ours who was um, who ended up being a friend of mine and he get, got me a job as a, as a waiter at Skybox. So it's just a basic American sports bar, bar and grill and- it was in the mall. It was a big restaurant, and I was I was under twenty one, so I couldn't I couldn't be a, a waiter by law in Utah because of alcohol. <laughs> so, so I was a food runner. So all I could do, all they let me do, was carry food from like once it got cooked, I had to plate it, grab the plates, put it on a tray, and help the waitresses take the food to people's tables while they're taking other orders. And it was hell, man. Like I I hated that job. At the start, it was cool. Um, I did Fridays and Saturday nights, five till ten p.m. Five hours straight on my feet after two a day sessions. I still remember it, and it was pretty cool for the most part at the start. Um, I had a manager, a guy, and then the shifts changed. I got this lady, and she was man, she was a bitch to me. She was, you know, the, the other manager. If it was like nine o'clock and things were dying down, he'd be like, "All right, man, just get out of here," or you know, "What what, what food do you want to take with you?" Whereas this chick, it was like, "You're staying here till nine fifty nine fifty nine. If there was no one left in the restaurant, she'd be like. Go and roll some cutlery. Go and roll some utensils and the napkins. Go and do this. And I was just like, oh man. So I, I did that for about. I think I did it for almost two months um, until I built up enough bankroll that it would at least get me through to be able to pay my rent. But that was all my fault. I shouldn't have moved off campus. It was just just stupid. But I had to, I had to kind of work for it. And I guess it made me respect money even to this day. I just remember going there a couple of times and you hooking me up with some free chips. That was my favorite part yeah. about you working at Sky. <laughs> That's all I could get my hands on. But the worst part was, so you, like you said, I was I was an All American. I was all over ESPN. I was touted as the next, you know, at that point, a, a top ten, top fifteen pick mid season. And I'm working at a damn sports bar, so everyone that comes, to, <laughs> everyone that comes to the bar, like, wants to talk to me. So I drop off like food at someone's table, and they're like. Andrew Berger, I'm like, yeah, he's like, oh, what are you doing here? I'm like, well, I'm working, man. What does it look like I'm doing? And then they want to have a conversation about who you guys got this week or oh, great game last week. And it was kind of cool, but at the same time, it was half embarrassing because I was like, <laughs> why am I here working at Skybox? And that's that's my gripe with the NCAA, right? It's like, you're selling my damn jersey in the bookstore, like making money off my name and I'm working in a damn restaurant like just so I can pay my rent, you know? And I remember when we had- the meals, you know, the NCAA rules, you guys could feed us after training, after practice sessions. So I remember taking enough food for three or four days, um, take all the leftovers and, and try to have as much food as I could because it was free. But there were the other days where I had to eat, I was eating off I was eating off the Wendy's dollar menu that was near my house. I mean, a lot of people don't know that, but uh, I had three or four dollars in my pocket after school driving home and I'd, I'd get four cheeseburgers for a dollar. Like, and this is like a, 
you know, I think the NCAA has done a, a bit of a better job now with increasing the grants and, and trying to look after athletes a little more. But that's what it was like in the 2000s. And it was it was hard to just – I couldn't take a girl to the movies. I couldn't do any of that shit. And it was it was definitely tough. Those are different days. Now it's, now it's a lot easier for these guys. I mean, it's still not where it should be, but it's a lot better than having the best player in the country at that time working at, working at a waiter in the skybox. <laughs> Oh, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, I guess the, the kind of story from that season was um, I mean, the bond that you and I built. You know, we, we spent a lot of time together. I even spent time with your family when you weren't there at times when I was in Wisconsin and had kind of no friends or family there at that point and they'd have me over. But um, it then it then gave you, you know, an opportunity to to come. I remember getting you into some Bucks practices and when I was with Milwaukee, you'd come in as a guest coach. So, trying to help you out. Um, throughout your journey, which pushed you to, to different um, coaching jobs and basketball ops jobs. And I guess the kicker is we still remain friends to this day. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's created a special uh, friendship. It's been, it's been awesome. You know, all the things that I've been able to experience and even down the line, you know, I got to go to some of the Warriors stuff and- uh, Yeah, I got you to the finals games a couple of times. Yeah, multiple times and- some of the best experiences of my life, and uh, it's been it's been pretty neat, and I, I do appreciate all that all that stuff. I guess I'll leave you with this. I mean, what's your what's your fondest memory of that year with with Ray Jackalini? I mean, obviously we 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 won a lot of games and and all that fun stuff, but give me give me something that you can remember. I'll put you under the pump here a little bit that that probably you still think about to this day. For that year, probably my favorite memory was beating UTEP. In the in the, to go to the Sweet Sixteen, or no, sorry, Oklahoma. We beat UTEP first, and then beat Oklahoma, just because it was a, we were the six, and they were the three. And Calvin Sampson, who, funnily enough, Small World ended up being an assistant coach with me in Milwaukee one year. But um, yeah, they were they were tough. They had the two, they had that big kid Taj Gibson, and it was a book out. Kevin book out was it maybe? Big football player. Yeah, a couple really good guards. Yeah. Um, but that was probably just my favorite memory. Of that year is just kind of celebrating, and we we're in Tucson, and I was just uh, it was just an unbelievable experience winning those two games, and then going to the Sweet Sixteen, and and when we get to the Sweet Sixteen, there's Kentucky, and I think Michigan State was playing somebody. Oh, Michigan State was playing, I forget who they were playing before that, but but it was just a incredible experience, and like you said, we were if uh, Jayhawk could have made a couple more threes, I think it would have been a different story that game. Because uh, that Kentucky team was really good. They had Rondo, Azubuke. Oh, uh, three seven-footers. I don't know if you remember. They had three seven-footers they threw at me in split minutes. So they just wore me. I still ended up with 20 and 12, but I, I didn't feel like I played well. I missed some free throws. I just didn't play that well. But they had the, they had the big the big kid from Africa that was like 7-4 that they played for spot minutes. They had a big Polish kid, and then they had um, Randolph Morris and Chuck Hayes, and they were just – they did a great job of just throwing different people at me that played me differently, and I, I never really got in a good rhythm, and I guess we, we – we were right there too the whole game, which was crazy. You know, we were, we were five, six, seven points, but we just couldn't get it down to, to even or, or the lead, and that's why they're Kentucky, and they get the, the best kids every year. Yep, they, they threw out three seven-footers, that, and they used all 15 fouls on you yeah yeah that was that was that was pretty neat that was and our, our last home game is when i realized how special it was is prior last home game you know this was my it was my third year at utah um and just really getting to know college basketball at that point uh was just you know when we were doing kind of the uh um it was senior night 
and they were doing senior night for Mark Jackson and I forget who else, but we were kind of celebrating you that day too. Um, and I was just looking at a couple, you know, I looked at coach Jack and, and uh, a couple of the other assistant coaches, they kind of had tears in their eyes, uh, during that, during that pregame. And that was another point where I was like, man, this is, this just doesn't happen every day where you're at and at the University of Utah. And just that, that was another, uh, kind of, you know, I just remember that to this day. Like, man, that was just a really special year and to be around the best player in the country at that, at that point. That was, that was the best part about it. Yeah. And I got lucky because they, they, um, I had my dad come out and that was senior night, but they also honored me knowing <laughs> that I wasn't coming back. I mean, they, they weren't silly. It would be crazy to stay on for another year and, and risk injury or whatever if I could go top 10. But I remember they, they did, you know, Ray Giacoletti and a few other c coaches and people within the University of Utah. They even retired my jersey about, you know, three, four or five months later that following season, which which generally is not supposed to happen unless you graduate. And I obviously didn't graduate because I only spent two years there. So they did a lot of fantastic things, which you were obviously a part of. So it was um, a very special time, a much simpler time, I think. We'd all agree it was a, an awesome time to be part of all that when – with, with guys that I guess you kind of will remember for the rest of your life. But we will uh, wrap it up there. Thanks, Cody, for spending some time with us. I think the people really appreciate it. We wish you the best of luck with your journey. And and from what I understand, you know, the future head coach. That's that's the plan. That's what I'm, I'm working towards. And uh, hopefully I get a chance to coach a couple guys like you, man. That'd be nice. All right, man. Thanks. All right, brother. So once again, a very special thank you to Cody Figa, assistant coach of the BYU men's basketball program as of current hopefully he will be a head coach one day we can all celebrate his success down the track so i'll be watching closely i still remain good friends with him as i mentioned so uh, we'll see how that goes but thanks again to cody moving on now the feature interview on this episode episode six is former head coach at the university of utah ray jacoletti very integral part of kind of where my career kind of ascended and everything kind of came together so when he initially got the job, I had no idea who he was, didn't even really know much about um, the school he was from. He was from the University of Eastern Washington. They had a, a school record year under Coach Giacoletti. They were a Cinderella story. They played very, very well. I think they um, definitely overachieved and um, gone from a small school like that. He ended up getting the head coaching gig at the University of Utah. So, he was going into a newfound land as well and I was um, in a part of my career where I didn't know if I was going to come back for my sophomore year. I, I kind of felt like um, my freshman year was an up and down and uh, it was it was beyond a grind at times. And look, I understand you have to have uh, setbacks and speed bumps and adversity, but um, the adversity faced from, from a guy like Rick Majerus was probably more than any 19, 20-year-old should face at times. It did make me tougher, made us all tougher, but it wasn't even um, – necessarily stuff just directed at me it was probably just seeing the treatment of some you know teammates and coaches and training staff um it gets to you mentally and it was not an enjoyable year it was a very very hard year i uh, learned a lot about basketball like i said um on episode four he was one of the smartest coaches i've ever played for but the human element and that toll that it took uh, was toxic at times and that kind of left a sour taste in my mouth about going back and, and essentially doing that for, for, for no money. You know, we, uh, I was 19, 20 and being offered multi-million dollar deals to go over to Europe. I was on draft boards after my freshman year, late first round peak projected first round. So, I was at a crossroad again. What do I do? Do I go back? 
you know, a, a fresh head coach that's going to tell me what I want to hear when he pitches me coming back. And then we all know once you get there, you're there. There's no, there's no, you know, reneging on what um, you agreed to. So that was in the back of my mind. You know, I felt like a lot of college coaches were the recruiting process felt like you were being sold a car from a car dealer. It felt like that. You know, they tell you everything you want to hear and you're, you know, you're, and that's probably wrong in a way because there's there is some adversity you're gonna face along the way, but they're recruiting you, so they don't they don't want to tell you that. So Ray Jackaletti flew out to see my parents, which was discussed on episode four. I was in national team camp, so I, I wasn't there. He made sure that they were good. Uh, my dad loved him. Big difference, breath of fresh air from from like a Rick Majerus. And then he actually flew to Athens, Greece, while I was in um, the middle of an Olympic, Olympic campaign, and I caught up with him for a meal or two and. Gave him my word that I'd be back and basically just put on the table like, hey, I don't want to be, you know, sold a lemon again. I've got some gripes about that and I don't know if I'm going to stay beyond this year. And he said, look, you come back for a year and, and the rest will take care of itself. Um, I'm not trying to keep you here longer than you should be and, and vice versa. If you can go to the NBA after your second year, by all means, and we'll support whatever you do. So, he was true to that word. So, you, we'll, we'll discuss a bit of that in the um, in the interview. He, you know, somewhat re-recruited me. Um, but it was, you know, we had to build a fresh and new relationship, which there were growing pains, as we'll discuss in detail. There were turning points. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, he, he, he was, he was a guy that gave me, you know, gave me some freedom, um, and allowed me to play freely, both from a basketball point of view and mentally. There wasn't. There was obviously a consequence from for, for mistakes that were made over and over. But he let you play to the point where you're going to make a mistake every now and then, and that just opened up my game immensely. I really got to do a whole lot of different things out there and had a one of the best years of of my life, basketball wise, statistically and and team wise. So we'll get into all that and more. So without further ado, please welcome Ray Jackaletti. Okay, so I'd like to welcome a special guest, a former. Coach of mine, the head coach at the University of Utah, Ray Giacoletti. I'll read through his his long resumes, almost as long as mine. Uh, real quick, he started at Minute State, Minot State in the in the early eighties. Followed that by being a grad assistant there for a year. Went on to Western Illinois as a grad assistant after that in the mid eighties. Followed by Oral Roberts as an assistant coach, the Fresno Flames as an assistant coach, early nineties Illinois State as an assistant coach. Then was at the University of Washington as an assistant in the mid nineties. Then went over to North Dakota State. Coach there, head coach in the early 2000s, was um, at the University of Eastern Washington as a head coach. And then I ran into to Coach Jack at the University of Utah in 2004 when he took over for Rick Majerus. He was there for three years, then went to Gonzaga as a, as a head assistant for Mark Few in Gonzaga, and then head coaching position at Drake in 2013 to 2016, and then presently at the University of St. Louis as an assistant coach. So, welcome to the show, Coach. Uh, it's a pretty hefty resume. You got 40 years in, in college basketball. All that means is I'm old, Bogues. Great to hear from you, and it's, it's, I'm looking forward to catching up. Yeah, I appreciate you coming. I mean, obviously, an integral part of kind of getting to, getting me to, to where I, I am today, essentially, a, a big, big um, cog in that whole wheel. And I guess we'll start off by when, when did you first hear about about me and, and my name and my basketball kind of prowess? You know, what's funny with that is when you had sent me these notes and I was kind of right, jotting some notes down, when we were on the road, my last year at Eastern Washington and big monday was a big deal on espn at that time and i remember distinctively several times watching utah play your freshman year while we were on the road you know playing someplace or getting ready to play someplace 
And so I bet I had a chance to watch you at least twice, if not three times, not having any idea a year from then, you know, have a chance to work with you. But um, I, I bet I saw you play three or four times your freshman year at Utah. Yeah, which then I guess leads into we obviously were transitioning from Rick Majerus. He had resigned mid my freshman year. Coach Kerry Rupp took over and, and a lot of people thought that he was he was kind of the favorite to take over. But um, the university made a, a kind of a, a good decision, I guess, to kind of distance themselves away from that that whole last twenty years of, of coach and the success, and kind of start fresh. And I guess your name came up as one of the interviewees, and and you did really well and got the head coaching job. And I'm going to be honest, I didn't really know much about you, and not not many of our guys did. But your first order of business was to fly to Australia and almost re-recruit me, which. Um, it was no secret that I wasn't entirely happy with my, my freshman year in college. I, I had an okay year numbers wise, but it was a bit of a struggle. But just talk about that. I mean, it's kind of a quirky thing and, and probably not done that often. Yeah, I, I just remember, you know, obviously, what could we do to try to build a relationship and trust with you and your family? And literally, you know, a few days after the press conference, I was longer in the air both ways than I was on the ground to, to, to have a chance to, to meet your mom and dad. And, and just to try to build trust that you would trust me and that I'd have to be a fool if not, we were, you know, not to highlight you in every way, shape or form, offensively, defensively, whatever we were doing. Um, I had seen enough of you and watched had watched then some tape once I'd gotten the job um, to know that you had a chance to be very special. And so just to try to do our best job and be upfront and honest as we could. And, and uh, your parents were amazing and we were lucky enough to be able to, uh, to get you stayed for your sophomore year. Yeah, look, from my point of view, it was a huge gesture just to be able, you know, get the job and then be on a plane pretty much the next day. You not even didn't even go to campus to settle in and flew, like you said. I mean, it was you were in town for for a day and a half, two days, and spent more time in the air. Was that was that your decision? Was the school in your ear a little bit about it, or did you just figure it it needed to be done? No, uh, I I thought it needed to be done, and it was funny, uh, Bogues. I remember. You know, it, it, because it was literally you had no time to, to, to prepay a ticket or anything like that, It'd get a ticket in advance. And I remember it was like eight grand. And I remember thinking that would have been half our recruiting budget at Eastern Washington. And so <laughs> I was like running around trying to find uh, Chris Hill for him to okay it. And when I finally got a hold of him, he just started laughing. He's like, I think that would be money well spent. Uh, money's not an object here. And um, so I just, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, there's no way they're going to let me do this for eight grand. He was excited that I was going to go down there and have a chance to, to meet your mom and dad. Yeah, um, it was a huge step. Don't get me wrong. But um, I guess that the big change for myself and even the team was to go from from a Majerus to yourself. You played a, you, you had a pretty regimented style and a structure that was, you know, pretty obvious but you i think i feel like you allowed mistakes as long as they were corrected and we try to better them i guess for you as a head coach coming into coach a team that had a lot of players that were kind of had that majerus kind of i guess lack of confidence at times ingrained in them how, how did you see that challenge and was it noticeable that some of the guys just wouldn't get out of their shell i mean a guy like jonas longvide was a prime example he was a, a kid that really got into his shell because he was almost broken the year before and did you see that 
as a, as a challenge, both for myself and the team? You know, it's funny you say that because I wasn't around and was brand new. I was just trying to pick up the pieces the best we could. And going back the last two years at Eastern Washington, we tried to play a different style because we had to go play five guarantee games a year. And this is a long story, but I'll get back to answer your question. And so I went and met with the people about learning to run the Princeton offense at the time. And that was different for us. And it helped us get over the hump at Eastern Washington and, and helped us go win some guarantee games uh, those last two years. But when I got to Utah, I guess I thought we needed to try to do something different. When I started watching tape of the team, I wanted, I thought then what we had been doing the last two years would fit you perfectly. And the thing that I most remember is you were maybe the best passing big man I've ever been around. And what other people would probably thought initially being crazy playing at the high post, it evolved into something pretty unique and special. And the other piece of it was to be able to get you from the high post to the low post at different times in the shot clock to where teams couldn't beat the heck out of you. As I saw on tape from your freshman year, when you would run to the block, you would just get mauled down there. But trying to get you there maybe in the last 15 or 10 seconds of the shot clock, and you were such a good passer out of double teams that you just thrived in it. And the rest of the guys, Mark Jackson was a huge piece of that, huge, and, yeah, and you massive. will attest huge. to it also. I mean, once we got you back and got Mark back, we had two guys that were bought into winning and wasn't about their numbers. I, I mean, one of the other, and I'm going off track here a little bit, but you and Mark had a challenge. You, you had each taken like 23, 24 charges a piece at one point in that season. And those were the little things. I, I tell that story all the time. It's like, if the best player in college basketball can go take 25 charges in a season or lead the country in rebounding, do you not think you could do those same things? And um, you just, you two guys made that year because there were some other things that went on behind the scenes that maybe even you weren't even aware of, or maybe you were. But, um, you know, I, I, knew some of the other guys just tried to build them up as best we could but if you remember right we, we didn't have anybody at the four spot that could knock down a three so what would happen is in transition or whatever we'd be doing the guy guarding uh the four would just go down and sit on top of you and then your man would play behind you so we had to try to find creative ways and, and each guy was different but as long as we had you and Mark controlling that locker room and making sure everybody was on the same page. Randy Ray and I tried to do the best we could with outside the locker room and trying to figure out, you know, how to best utilize you. Yeah, and just for some context, Mark Jackson was he played for Rick Majerus, I think, two seasons prior. So my freshman year he had he had quit playing basketball essentially and just went back to work for his family and then took that my freshman year off completely. Um and then 
he had one year left of eligibility and that was that was what you're, you're referring to. That was almost a re-recruiting process for yourself. And, and he was, I believe he could have been an NBA player if he really wanted to. He had that toughness. He could shoot the ball. He was a hustle guy, but um, he just, I think he was happy with, with just going back to normal life after college. Yeah, I, I just remember, I think you two guys really understanding that, hey, this would be the last time, you know, it was Mark's last year one way or the other, and he made the most of it. And, and it was going to be, you know, your last opportunity in college. And just you guys did whatever it was going to take for the team to be successful. Um, you know, I think... As I look back on that, Bryant Markson was another guy I thought that really bought in. Team, Tim Drisdom uh, really bought in and, and trying to accomplish the team, accomplish um, the best things it possibly could and sacrifice for each other. But um, there was some other things going on behind the scenes that you would think with the season we had, everybody would be happy. But, uh, you know, it it's just a kind of life that's the way it is but it was a special year you know needless to say so do you think regarding that year do you think we as a team or even myself individually do you think we would have had a year that we had like when you when you first got the job looked at the roster maybe i don't know a month into individual sessions um with the ncaa rules before the actual season um training camp started did you think we'd be that good i, I didn't know I, I was just trying to do the best we could our staff was just trying to do the, you know, find a way to help you be the best you could, which was really easy. We could screw up a lot of things. I bet Randy Ray and I said 20 times on that bench that year, we would screw things up maybe for 30 seconds on the shot clock and somebody would throw it to you at five left on the shot clock and you either score it or throw a dime to a guy for a layup and we'd look at each other and go, you know, we hadn't nothing to do with that that was just a great play by a great player but you could tell that we had the pieces and it just took a while to gel i mean i remember the why in the road uh early on at logan getting beat by 25 early in the season maybe three or four games into it and that was a pretty good indication you know the kind of job that you and mark did keeping the team together because after getting beat by 25 on the road, it could have went the other way, but it didn't. And I think we went on to rattle off 18 in a row after that. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. I remember that. That was at Utah State, I believe, on the road. And um, yeah, I guess, look, I, I definitely, it was the first time I was kind of played in the high post at any point in my career. And I think it's a, it was a perfect fit for me to see the floor and ha kind of be facing the basket, especially with like you mentioned, the Princeton offense for me was a godsend to an extent because there was just constant backcutting and slips and I could see all that and throw those passes. But another quirky thing we used to do was used to, we used to double a lot in the post and it was generally whoever I, I was guarding or whoever the foreman was guarding, we just do random doubles on, on post players. And at one point I was like, man, am I a bad defender? What's going on here? But looking back, I, I guess it, it kept me in the game minutes-wise because it kept me out of foul trouble. And I think that was – you know, probably a con conscious decision by yourself and the coaching staff to, you know, we know Bogus can guard in the post to an extent, but we can't afford to have him pick up two or three fouls early. And looking back, it was kind of genius. Yeah, we there was two things we wanted to do. And, and one of them, I remember you, you know, you, you were always great because we could say whatever we wanted to say to each other and it was never going to be in front of other people. And But one of them was, I remember the day I asked you, like, 
you know, you like led the uh, the league your freshman year in block shots. And I said, you know, I, you can't do that every possession, try to go block the shot. We got to have you on the floor 38 minutes. And the other piece was if we help with double teams, again, just to try to keep you out of foul trouble, wasn't for any other reason other than we, we had to find a way to keep you on the floor 38 minutes. And you bought into the charge deal. I said, it's not, you still block shots, but if you mix it up a little bit uh, and you bought into it, I'll give you that now. And you still were a, a really good shot blocker, but I think you had people so confused and you carried it out throughout the rest of your career, which you'll never know. Wherever I was sitting during your NBA career and, and would see you take a charge in an NBA game, a smile would come across my face. Like, again, if it's good enough for the best player in college basketball, it should be good enough for everybody. And what's funny about that is I was labeled as a defensive bust and defensive liability coming out of college. So I end up making an all-defensive team later in my career. So it just goes to show sometimes even the scouts can get it wrong. Yeah, just um, – you know, again, going back and just trusting each other, and that's what I I appreciated about you. It, um, you know, I, I was very blessed to have coached you for the year, and and we it, it seemed to work. It, it was uh, timing and in, in life is everything, and and the timing was perfect for that because uh, you took us on a heck of a ride. Yeah, and look, we'll get to a bit of a negative. It wasn't all rosy between you and I. We had, we did have one one massive blow up, um, which I think was a turning point, at least for myself and probably probably you as well. But we had a big Australian kid called Luke Neville, seven footer, and he was uber talented. He he just didn't really have the work ethic and drive on a daily basis. But the thing with Luke was, one out of maybe ten sessions, he would he would be one of the best players on the court, but the other nine, he'd be almost the worst. So I remember we had a training session. I still remember up at the hyper gym, which was the the student courts. So we kind of booked that out because we, <laughs> we, we couldn't be on the Huntsman because we got kicked off or whatever happened. And I remember Luke Neville was just kicking my ass that day. Everything I did, he, he just hitting fadeaways, hooks. So we I believe we had a no front rule on the post. We didn't like front on the post and getting out of position and giving angles. So I started getting frustrated with Luke. So I'm like, nah, like- I'm going to try to front him and just not let him catch. So you blew your whistle and you said, Bogues, we don't front here. Play solid defense behind and blah, 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 blah. So I did that and then he scored again. So I've looked at you and I'm like, what the fuck? Like this is starting to piss me off. So then next play down, I go to front again. <laughs> you blow your whistle and you're like, Bogues, we don't do that. And we went back and forth at each other and it was it was heated um, and it was emotional. And I guess it was a bit of a disagreement in philosophy. And I felt like, you know, I need to get the ball out of his hands. He's killing me. And I think it was more... The fact that Luke Neville was just killing me and I was frustrated and you you booted me out of practice. You kicked me out of practice and said, you know, get, get out of here. That was probably a turning point for, for our relationship. David Bauman, my agent, who was my agent at the time, but was kind of helping me through. He helped a lot through that because he, I basically called him trying to have a cry about it. And he basically told me, harden the F up and, 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 and shut up like it's your college coach you need to go back there and 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 buy in and respect what he's doing and and even if you were to leave where are you going to go so he worked me up and i guess do you remember that do you remember that story and do i have it correctly you have it correctly and and um you know i had kind of a why in the road that day also because i either had to if i would let you get by with that that day i'd have got walked on by 12 other guys and so I kind of had to make a quick decision and I tell you, you had me worried for 24 hours though, because we, we didn't communicate for 24 hours and 
you know, was kind of uncertain of what was going to take place. And you're right. After that, uh, your and I's relationship was amazing after that. But, you know, I, I think you were probably, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but, you know, you're going to test the new guy. And, and I had 12 or 13 other guys going to watch what I was going to do, and which was going to dictate, you know, if I could coach them hard. You know, it just was one of those situations. And thank God it all worked out. And, and uh, you know, we were both probably testing each other a little bit. Yeah, and I think these days that gets lost. I think we had our blow up, we had our back and forth, and it got it got real chirpy, and we both said things we probably regret. But I think that's a testament of a good team, a good player-player relationship, a good player-coach relationship. You're going to have those blow ups, whether it's in the NBA or college or whatever environment you're in, when you're around elite people. And I think the most important thing is from those is that you go away, you take your time, your day or two, you catch your breath, and then you move on and you correct those mistakes of that happening and, and you get on with it. And I think that relationship then grows to another level. And I think we've kind of, I mean, you'd see it coaching in college basketball. We've got lost with that where you can't even have that blow up anymore because parents will get involved or an old AAU coach will get involved. And I think it's just a, it's kind of a blow to, to, to raising kids the right way. Cause you have to have those, I believe as, as, as bad as they were at the time and as bad as they felt, I think they, they build your relationship tenfold instead of onefold. Would you agree? I agree 100%. Um, what we're teaching kids today, in my opinion, is how to quit. And not only how to quit once, but how to quit two or three different times. These new transfer rules are ridiculous. Uh, I mean, this year, you could transfer at the semester and go to another place. And if you hadn't played that first semester, you could play the second semester at the other school. And you're like, what are we doing? Have a little toughness here and fight through something. If, if we quit now, we're going to quit a hundred more times in your lifetime. I always got along with, with guys that, you know, that had, that ran hot, that, that, you know, had that fire burning. And you certainly, you know, we had our little confrontation and I don't think we had another one to be quite honest with you. I can remember, but I, I would rather have that than a guy you're constantly prodding to try to get to work hard or I don't know how it is in Australia today, but in America, all we're doing is teaching the next generation on how to quit, not once, but three or four different times. Yeah, I would agree totally. I think it um, those lessons that I learned not only through college, but even my junior career, the adversity, that's what makes you and that's what makes you into a professional because once you get to the professional level, you're going to face much more of it. And you, if you can handle that accordingly and you still have your blow ups and you still go back with back and forth with with rival players, even players in your team, trainings, there's sometimes there's punches thrown, but the next day you got to forget about it and move on. And, and that's something that you can then carry with you as a building block for culture. But yeah, I would totally agree. It's 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 definitely it's definitely changed. It makes makes coaching very hard and it's just it is easy to just go to the, the other school that recruited you or the next high school the AAU team and um I think it's setting a bad precedent but we'll move on from that do you remember um do you remember when I came to you and basically asked for money you know when I was reading those notes I don't but as I read through it I kind of remember and it's a story that I wish I had, I had would have used more over the years not the fact that you came for money, but what you did after that. I mean, think about, it wasn't that long ago. We're talking about 16 years ago to where the, the top player in, in college basketball was gonna go work in a sports bar Friday and Saturday night to make a few extra bucks before the season started. I mean, 
you talk about a work ethic and understanding who you are and I just that would never happen today never it's all about you know gimme 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 you know you need more but those are again mom and dad did an amazing job at instilling a work ethic into you and I reflected a lot on that today reading when you you, that segment of the notes you sent me and it's like I didn't really remember it but it started to coming back to me I told a couple people about it today it's like can you ever believe the best player in college basketball four months five months before that would be working at a sports bar on Friday and Saturday night and have no issues or no problems did his job kept his mouth shut I think you had that's why one of the reasons I think not only your play on the court but why you're so special in Salt Lake City because you have a work ethic you, you're you were among the people yeah it's, I, I so yes I, I didn't remember it but I it started coming back to me a little bit today well yeah I, I remember it clearly and you I basically came to the office it was my fault I moved off campus that that sophomore year and thought getting a, a check would be much better than living on campus which was the dumbest decision I made but then I come to realize how am I going to pay for food how am I going to pay for, for petrol or gasoline for my car and then rent on top of that so I came to you and said, oh, I need some help. And you said, hell no, we can't do that. We're not doing that. And then so then, then my follow-up was, well, can you try to get me a meal card on campus? Um, you try, but then that was deemed illegal by NCAA standards. So the third best option was, I can try to find you a job. And I'm like, yep, done. Let's just do that. I tried the first two. They didn't work. And like you said, I worked at Skybox, which was downtown. And the funny thing I spoke about Cody with it as well was that it was a sports bar. So everyone kind of knew who I was and I was running out food at tables five hours on a Friday and five hours on a Saturday, but it got me over the hump. I mean, I got, I got paid pretty well for it and um, it made me bank up enough, enough money in the account to then get me through the, the season so I could pay my rent. But um, definitely a great part of my kind of life. It, it didn't make me kind of have the NCAA on my Christmas card list, I can tell you that, because back then, I think it's changed now. I think the, the grants are a little bit more, so at least the kid can go out to the movies with his girlfriend and whatnot. But boy, back back in the 90s and the 2000s, the NCAA, it was tough. It was really, really tough to get by, especially as an international student, but um, that's changed a lot today. Yeah, it, it was tough. I agree 100%. And you would be shocked today if you knew what all's going on. Uh, I mean, it's called cost of living. And at most places, it's a minimum of $5,000 a year. So think, just think about each semester getting a check for $2,500. Um, that's before the American kids could throw Pell on there. So, and now the next step's going to be this image likeness. It could go crazy here in the future but you know you you aren't trying to do anything that the normal college kid just have a few extra bucks in your pocket and um but there just would be very very few people that would ever went and done that and um i just astonished and the, and the people i told the story to today you know they were like what now one was the one of the other assistants here at SLU. Um, who, by the way, we actually, ah, that, no, no, no. I, he, he played college basketball in Missouri, but that's a whole nother different story. But he was like, he was a really good player. And he was like, okay, you're telling me Andrew Bogut, four months before he became the Naismith winner, worked Friday and Saturday night at a sports bar. I said, yeah. Uh, and he said, it wasn't just BS. I said, no, he worked. We went down there 
several different times, Kim and I, and to check on him or have dinner or whatever. It's like, no, he, he worked. It was all legit. There was no, you know, hey, yeah, you're doing this. You can sit in the back or go, you know, not show up or anything like that. No, he, you worked. And uh, amazing story. I'm glad you refreshed my memory of it today. Yeah, it was tough. I had a, I had a, I had a manager that, a lady that, um, I don't know what her deal was. She was the older single lady, so she hated the world. <laughs> she was on me. <laughs> she was, you know, even when there was no customers in, it was, <laughs> it was go cut some lemons or it was you go cut some- You never told me that now. Oh, man. It was, there, was, there were days where I was like, <laughs> oh, I was man. close. Some days I was like, man, like I'm, this is tough. Like I'm really, you know, and then on top of that, I still did it for a couple of weeks leading into training camp when we had the tour days. I still did it right until we had our first game and then I obviously couldn't do it anymore. But no, it was good. It was, it was a great part of my journey and it's it's a great story. But moving back to, to basketball, we go 29 and six overall, 13 and one in conference with a Mountain West Conference regular season champs. We finished second in the tournament, the, the Mountain West Conference tournament. New Mexico was kind of our rivals and had Danny Granger and they were a very well, well coached team at the time as well. But we ended up going to the Sweet 16, 18 game winning streak at one point. I think we led the nation and it was just a real enjoyable year for me as it, it kind of set the scene for everything beyond that for me. But I really, looking back, I think the AIS and the University of Utah were probably my most enjoyable um, memories from playing basketball. You know, the NBA is a whole different different thing because you're making money and it's not as kind of, I don't think it's as pure as what college basketball was back then and, and the AIS. But I guess, was that your best season as, as, as a head coach or an assistant coach or a coach in general? And not just, not just because of wins and losses, just because of kind of everything we went through as a team. There were two, Andrew. That was certainly one of the two. The, the year before that, at Eastern Washington, we, we took the school to its first ever NCAA tournament. So that was pretty unique also. But I mean, it's 1A, 1B. They're the, the top two in my career. And that whole thing was a blur to me. Um, I don't know how it was for you, but it, it's a blur. I, uh, and I hate to use the word I, but I just remember literally we got beat uh, in Kansas City by Oklahoma State. And right after the game, Utah people had called and wanted me to fly right from Kansas City to, to meet with them. I said, I'm not going to do that. I, I flew home to Spokane with our team, went and changed clothes, flew to Salt Lake, met with Chris Hill. And, you know, three or four days later, did the press conference, three or four days later in that, went and met with your mom and dad in Australia and literally did not have a break. And I was burnt. Uh, I was done at the end of that year. It was, you know, looking back, like, you know, maybe the best year of my career being a part of something like that, but the fatigue I felt and just being burnt and needing a break, I've never, it's been a long time since I felt that way. Um, but the pride and looking back on it, so many great memories. Yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it's amazing when you stop and think about it. Were you tired? Nah, nah. I mean, I, I wish I had that all throughout my career. I don't know what I had bottled up, but I, I, it was kind of always the next thing. I, I mean, if you remember, I came from the Olympics um, before you got the job. I was at the Olympics and then you got the job. 
So I had a whole off season to play against grown men and and I, I felt like I came back even better because of that. Um, I've, I've been quoted as saying I felt like I was coming back to my sophomore year to play against boys again and I felt like a man. So I, was, I wasn't, funnily enough, I, I didn't, didn't really have a vacation and, and once I'd kind of once we were done with the sweet 16 i went and started preparing for the draft but um it it definitely was it was a really kind of quick part of, of of my journey but one that it can be blurry at times and that's why i guess getting people like yourself on and for me to even relive and reminisce about those times i think it's just cool to hear these stories and i hear very similar things from from numerous guests i get on of I don't remember that, but it was so cool to talk about it. And I think that's what it's all about at the end of the day, especially for yourself. Now you're becoming, you know, an older fella. So that that's all you'll probably ha- have to hang on to once you retire and you're, you're having beers on the beach is those memories. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. I, I mean, you just brought something else up. I, I went to Athens with you for five or six days. That's right. Yeah. You yeah, remember yeah. That? yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah, I do remember that actually. Yep. I sat down every night yep. at the bar with your dad and we had a nightcap to end the night. And I mean, what's the chances you, you talk about fate and timing of all the hotels in Athens. I stay at the same hotel, your mom and dad, and, and, and we didn't set it up. It just happened that way. I mean, uh, I came over cause we, we got by the NBA thing that you were going to come back, but I thought the European teams may try to mess with you, which I'm sure they did over there. Yep. Uh, while you're at, playing in the Olympics. And so I went over for like five days and your dad and I really got to be buddies during that time. Um, And it was, you know, just again, to try to support you in any way I could. But uh, another, you know, opportunity where I would never have a chance to do something like that, go to the Olympics. And so when you just mentioned that, I was like, I've forgotten I even gone over there, but uh, your, your dad and I got well acquainted, awesome man. Yeah, that was that was definitely interesting. It was, and you're right. Even before my freshman year, and then between my freshman and sophomore year, I was I was getting offers to go over to um to Europe. So, as a 19 year old, 20 year old, without even barely having any coins in my pocket, it was hard to turn down. But I was always kind of the belief that even for my freshman year, I gave my word to to Rick Majerus, and then I gave my word to you that I'll be back, and that kind of meant more than the money at that point, and I kind of knew the money would come down the track if I, if I ticked all the boxes. So moving on from, I guess, we, 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 we get knocked out in the Sweet 16, I kind of take off and start preparing for the draft. What do you remember about about coming out for draft night? I made a, a specific point of having yourself and, and Kim, your wife, to, to come out and be there and be part of that, that whole process, which was new to me, but I wanted to make sure. I think I could only get I think it was eight people on my table. Two were definitely for yourself and 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 your wife, and then it was myself, my mom, my dad, and I think two agents. So, do you remember that night? Oh my God! Yeah, as I sit here in my office on the hill in St. Louis, which is the Italian district in St. Louis, I I look over right up on the wall is is uh, the green room draft badge uh, that's draped across your. Naismith jacket you gave me and signed for me. So yeah, one of the special nights. Again, when would most coaches ever have a chance to do something like that? And um, maybe one of the kindest gestures uh, a player or somebody in basketball has ever done to my wife and I. We we had a ball and an interesting night. I I, I mean, you and I made the circuit. I don't know if you remember this, but made the circuit to Atlanta for the Naismith, then flew to Los Angeles for the Wooden, then flew back 
to Atlanta to meet with the Hawks. The guy I worked for for eight years, Bob Bender, was an assistant with them. But do you remember that after the month after the season yeah. got done? Yeah, and then the Final Four. And then went to the Final Four. That's right. <laughs> yeah, for all the awards. But it's a good thing when you're, when you're flying around collecting trophies. definitely a good thing. That was amazing time. You know, again, you only have one opportunity to do it. But for me to have a chance to go through that with you and have a small part was yeah, absolutely amazing. I got one other thing for you. Do you do you remember, and we can talk about this being this, you know, 16, 17 years ago, after after you made your visits, and I think I went to Atlanta, I, I don't think I went any place else with you, but maybe the Monday before the draft, got to the office and the, the, the top three teams, Milwaukee, Atlanta, was Sacramento the third one had the third pick? I can't remember who uh, it was New Orleans. now. New Orleans. New Orleans. They all had these emergency messages. And my cell phone, for whatever reason, I had off. And Coach Bender had left like four messages like, why didn't you tell us he had a degenerative eye disease? I'm like, oh, man. And so I call Coach Bender back first. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, somebody has leaked that Andrew has degenerative eye disease. I'm like, I've known him for nine months. I know he wears a contact in one eye. I've never heard of this. Let me go get our trainer. I said, just, do you remember that though? I mean, it, uh, it yeah, caused I do a remember. buzz. Like, I have it on my notes for, to talk about about my sophomore year. And it was, um, yeah, I mean, Rick Majerus, to put it bluntly, basically put out that I was going to be blind within three or four years. <laughs> Because I, I have I have an issue called keratoconus, which just means that my my um, corneas aren't completely round; they're a bit more kind of oval, and it can be degenerative if it progressively gets worse every year. But mine's been stable for 10, 15 years. So yeah, he 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 left me a nice little gift going into the draft. So then I had to wherever I had my draft workouts, which was only Atlanta and Milwaukee, they they sent me to an optometrist, an eye specialist, and those sessions were longer than my workout with the team. So they would have, they would basically, they did every scan possible on my eye. So people literally thought I was going to go blind. That wasn't, um, wasn't wow. too good. It really, it caused me some issues. We, we actually got to a point where we, we had a, a cease and desist letter drafted. My agent did, he was fuming at the time. And I mean, there were theories around why he did it. There was one was he was, he was Deron Williams personal trainer leading into the draft. And the other was that he didn't want me to go as as high as Keith Van Horn in the draft, which was, I think Keith went number two. I would go with that one, that Van Horn went two and he didn't want you to go one. Which is, yeah, which is kind of petty because he was he was part of my journey. I mean, whether whether our relationship wasn't good or not, he, he was he was part of it and should be proud of it. But I, that's funny because I'm, I'm about to, I will hit that hard in the pod outside of this Q&A because it, it was a really tough time, especially for a 19, 20-year-old um, dealing with that. You're like, man, what the hell is going on? Like I was, you know, any, anyway, but... um. I guess the, the reason why I wanted you around that that draft process especially was because, you know, most college coaches, to put it bluntly, a lot of college coaches, to put it bluntly, uh, I got the used car salesman feel for, from from a lot. Um, not saying all, but there's a lot that, that will, you know, lie to your face. They'll, they'll then over-recruit you. They'll then do X, Y, Z. But I guess you could have kind of tried to play hardball to an extent where – you know, to try and get me back for the junior year by, by you know, there's, there's coaches that have been, I mean, Rick Majerus was one that would do it and that would try to, you know, say you weren't that good in the media, you need another year in college and, and because they're trying to save their job for that following year or trying to save having the best player come back, right? And, and you were always on record about, 
if, if Andrew has a chance to be drafted, we need to support that as best as best we can. And that was really rare at the time. So I guess this, this is a forum to thank you for that. And, and the thank you was to, to bring you to that draft process. But that was kind of my mindset with all that. You were very kind. It was uh, one of the highlights uh, for, for even not only for me to be there, but but my wife to be there to enjoy it also is, you know, it's funny whenever we go to New York again, and not often, but we always bring that up and, and, and the four or five night or whatever it was, three or four nights in, in, uh, in New York during that time were really special and, and to be in the green room and to be with your family. And yeah, it was just an amazing experience and one that, uh, you know, never got a chance to do again. Uh, so yeah, thank you for that. No worries. And I guess the final thing, Utah basketball-wise, you you went to bat for me to have my jersey retired the following season. Uh, I was in the NBA as a rookie, and I, I believe it was over All-Star Weekend, so I had to go to All-Star Weekend in Houston to play in the rookie sophomore game. But you had basically pushed the school to retire my jersey, which for everyone listening, it, it doesn't happen very often that a two-year player has their jersey retired. Most schools have a rule where you need to be a you know, be there for four years and, and graduate. So talk about that. I mean, you didn't, I guess you went to bat for me and I, I assume it was a wrestle probably with that with admin at times to, to get that over the line, but you, you managed to do it. I think it was pretty easy, Bogue. I mean, if, if people couldn't see that you had done something, it was the second best year in school history. Think about the history of Utah basketball. You led us to the second best year in school history. So... That was pretty easy, and and I think everybody was pretty much on board. I don't remember a whole lot about you know having to twist too many arms. That was uh, that needed to be done. That was something that um, you know worked out perfect with with the All Star break with you, and and quite frankly, you know you were such so well respected in Salt Lake that it was the people needed to honor you because you know you go back to how that season ended, it's warp speed until you lose the game. And it's just like, boom, like it's hitting a wall. It's, it's done, over. over. There's no more. Yeah. You know, you, you uh -huh. win, you win, uh, yeah. you get done with the conference, you go to Vegas for the conference tournament, uh, go to the championship game, and then right away, who you play, you know, Selection Sunday, who do you play? Uh, we're going to El Paso, or we're going to Tucson to play UTEP. You know, you get lucky and win there, and then you got Oklahoma, and then you get lucky in there, win there, and then all of a sudden you're right back. Okay, we got Kentucky and Austin. What do we got to do? And, you know, it's just a blur. And so nobody really ha properly had a chance to thank you or or for you to kind of step in the public eye and 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 thank them, you know? So it was just the right thing to do. And I'm so glad the school school did it. And they, they, I don't I don't remember having to twist too many arms. Oh, that's good. Well, the number four is hanging up there forever. So that's nice. Is, as we finish, is there anything else that you want to tell our listeners about your, yourself or us or the journey or whatever you got for us? You know, it, for me, as I look back, it was just, uh, I feel really blessed. Uh, not too many guys again, uh, get a chance to coach the best player in college basketball. And, and I feel very fortunate. And you'll never know over the course of your NBA career how many times I was either sitting in a hotel room or at dinner at a bar and watching you and the, and the pride I felt with that. And I can speak for the rest of that coaching staff also. And it's just fun to have watched your career and you grow 
from a young man to a man and and uh, you, you did it with such grace. I mean, think about your journey and all the way to, to winning a world championship with the Warriors. So thank you. And, and it's been fun to, to be a small part of it. But I had just as much fun in the 15, 16 years after that, you know, watching you from afar and just, uh, you know, the pride we all had in, in you, the type of person and your work ethic and player. So no, it was, those were special, special times. And, and the other piece I think is if we could help somehow guys to get back to the old school, you know, thought process of putting a plan together and having a work ethic, we've lost that somewhere along the way. And I can go back. You were obviously one of them. And, and I bet I told Kelly Olenek 20 different Andrew Bogut stories during the time I was with him at Gonzaga. And he, he did it then finally. I mean, because of a small part of it is, is me telling stories about you. He redshirted in between his sophomore and junior year, put a plan together and followed through and became you know, our fourth big to literally in a year becoming the 14th player taken in the draft, still playing today in the NBA. So I don't think, you know, you would have no reason to, to know some of those things, but your legacy kind of rubs off on other people. And, and if people could go back to old school morals and values and work ethics, sure would be a whole heck of a lot easier out there than and kind of what it's come to today. Yeah, I think they still exist. They just they just aren't the loudest voices anymore. And that's I guess people like yourself and I and, and people that, that think that way just need to continue to, to not be afraid to to voice those opinions, I believe. You know, I think there's no better way than than having to face adversity if you're if you're a kid that um you know, as soon as you fall over, your parents run over and pick you up and basically are shedding tears for you your whole childhood and you're, you're bubble wrapping kids. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to survive in the real world. When you go for a job interview, you're not, you're not going to get the job every time. But if you, you know, if you're raised in a way where you get everything you want, it's going to be a harsh reality <laughs> once you become an adult. And I think that's, you know, that's part of what we talk about in this podcast as well is, is just, you got you to gotta face that adversity. You got to do dumb shit and get in trouble. You got to toe the line sometimes like you and I did with back and forth and set boundaries. And then you also got to realize there's consequences and then learn from them. That's part of being a human being and a person is you got to make mistakes. I mean, failures, I think um, one thing I've learned throughout my career is I don't, I don't see failure as a negative. I, 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 don't, I really don't. I, I see it as a positive because it's, it's just brutally honest and there's no political correctness around it. There's no sugarcoating. There's no bubble wrap. It's like you failed and then you, what you do after you fail is 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 the important thing. Is I'm going to write down why I failed, and, and it's I'm not I'm going to make sure it doesn't happen again. And we've lost sight of that. We we don't want people to fail, so we don't want you to, to have a bad day or a bad game because it's you know uh, we'll feel bad for you. It's like no, you need those things, right? I couldn't agree more. Um, it builds character, builds toughness. Every that's not reality where you know everybody gets a gold star and an A on your paper. It's just and you got to work at it. And if you want something, put a plan together. You know, you obviously through these podcasts, people will learn of your entire journey. And and again, hopefully, there's some young guys out there listening and and we'll follow suit so i think this is awesome what you're doing but yeah guys that get it figured out 
are certainly going to be successful in anything they do in life. But it's just the plan and the work, work ethic today is, is just not what it once was, in my opinion. So we got to find a way to, to uh, get people back to earning something and working towards something in, in anything we do. But you're a great example for that. Totally agree. Well, big thank you. I just want to take this opportunity to thank you as you were a big part of my journey, even though it was really a year and a blur at times. And just for letting me be me, you know, you didn't you didn't try to change my personality or who I was. You understood that I am a hothead at times. I am fiery, but when when you know our balls are on the line, I'm going to be there for you just as you were you were for me. So big thank you, and really appreciate the time. You're the best, my friend, and uh, enjoy retirement and. Um you know, our paths will cross again at some point, but uh, proud of you, Bogues. You too. Enjoy retirement. Thanks. So once again, thanks to Ray Giacoletti for um, joining us. It was a, a great chat. We, we haven't caught up for that long since I left college, essentially, you know, to, to chat for an hour plus, albeit via a podcast. You have to love technology. It was, it was I'm sure it was emotional uh, for him as it was for me. It was something that brought back very good memories of a great time in my life. I guess when you're in the moment sometimes and you're, you're trying to win games, you probably don't enjoy it as much as you should. But um, that was a really, really good good time in my life. Really, really enjoyed it. Ray Giacoletti was a huge part of that. And like I said earlier, he, he let me play. He let me, gave me the keys to the team. Um, we mentioned, you know, all of the statistics of how well our team did in that interview with, with Ray Giacoletti and we, we made the NCAA tournament, went to the Sweet 16 and then it ended. So what happens after it ends? Now, the tournament ended in March, obviously March Madness, it ended in March for us. I think that the championships usually end of March, start of April, so it can cross over a little bit. But the decision then for me went along the lines of this, I'm not going to be able to train on college campus because there's a two hour a week rule where you can train two hours and with your, with your teammates and whatnot. So I'd, I'd sat with my agent who I'd signed with, David Bauman, who will hopefully get on the pod down the track and discuss the next move. And he was adamant. Um, look, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I wasn't taking school too seriously at this point in my sophomore year. I didn't really, my grades were still good, but I didn't really invest the time I probably should have took that for granted a little bit, but my, my my sole focus was getting better at basketball and trying to get drafted. So, I took a lot of classes that I knew, you know, I wouldn't be doing down the line even if I wasn't a basketball player. It was just more of a, more of a, I guess, making sure I stayed eligible, pick some classes that were a little bit easier and just make, made sure I would tick the boxes to stay eligible, which I did. I mean, average a 3.0, which is a B average throughout college. But then that that's second semester, which was right when our season ended. I still had about six or seven weeks left. I think school finished in May. I left. I didn't I didn't finish school. And I probably should have finished looking back just to close that chapter for my sophomore year. But my stress was that I needed to get better. I needed to get in the weight room. I needed to work out. I needed to work out against NBA talent. And the decision was to fly me out to Washington, D.C., which is where my agent lived. And he set me up with a, a trainer out there um, intense sessions. There were a few European kids there. One of them was a still good friend of mine, Drago Pashalic, was a Croatian guy. He was also a Serbian kid by the name of Nemanja Alexandrov. So if you look him up, he was projected to be a top 10 pick the following year and then did his knee. So those guys were there. Mike Sweetney actually was also working out with the same trainer as me. So I got to battle against him. And it was just a matter of, uh, you know, doing some individual workouts, some shooting, some weights every day. And school wasn't on the cards anymore so it was a sole focus of five six seven hours of doing something basketball wise 
from April till the draft. It was preparing for the draft. So the reason why I left at the end of the day was was to make sure that I'm ready for those NBA draft workouts. Now, I'd finished a sensational college year and <laughs> a funny story goes along with that, but I get invited to the NCAA Final Four, which is in um, St. Louis. So I get flown out there by the NCAA because I'm, I'm in the running to win a shitload of college awards. So a lot of these big awards are presented on that weekend, you do you do a some of them were during like a breakfast, a lunch, or a dinner. You show up, they announce they announce you as the winner. You give a speech, uh, you meet and greet everyone, you say hello, and you take off. Um, a lot of them are done by sponsors. So I will read through um, the list of awards that I won. So we obviously made the Sweet Sixteen, so that was a big part of my success. And, and I averaged you know twenty points, twelve rebounds a night. A couple of block shots and a couple of assists. So, really, really high clip offensively. Uh, did a lot of different things. Shot threes, believe it or not, at a decent clip, low 30s. So, had just a great year. Everything fit in well. So, we, we go along with awards. 2005 ESPN Player of the Year. 2005 will be the year for all these. So I'm not going to keep reading the year, but Yahoo.com Player of the Year. Mountain West Conference Player of the Year. Sports Illustrated First Team All-American. Basketball Times Player of the Year. AP First Team All-American. Top vote tally. Won the Oscar Robertson Trophy, CBS Player of the Year, Pete Newell Big Man of the Year, National Association of Basketball Coaches Player of the Year, Naismith Trophy Trophy winner, John R. Wooden Award winner. Now, those last two are the big ones. The Naismith Trophy winner is generally the the one that's lauded along with the, the John R. Wooden Award. So, I did both those awards. The John R. Wooden one was done later on in LA. They do it at the LA Sports Club, still to this day, I believe. But the, the, the Naismith... Um, was done on that weekend and to sweep those awards was was unbelievable I, I didn't really even know if some of these awards existed to be honest with you like the big man of the year and all that kind of stuff so um i believe those trophies are somewhere i think a lot of them at my parents house yeah so i'm gonna track those down one day but there were some there were some big boys to get those back to australia there were some big um big trophy pieces a few of them broke in customs and whatnot but um, we've got got all those somewhere but that was the year that i had individually i played played very very well sweep the awards so a funny story that goes along with that i get flown out to um the final four i go to the semi-final games which were on the friday night and i remember it was at um it was at the football arena a football stadium there in st louis so it was packed and i remember there were some seats that were kind of had no view of the court because i was just blocked out with like um you know extra seats that they'd added or whatnot and it's a football stadium so there's going to be some um some seats where you can't really see the court and even those seats were sold so those got sold at like a 90 percent discount and people would go just to be part of the atmosphere and they'd just watch on the big screen but it was um unbelievable to experience that now i had tickets comped by ncaa for both those games so semi-finals and um <laughs> and finals the finals was on monday night i was actually flying out monday morning so i had two tickets um don't forget at this point i'm still a college kid with a college brain don't have a dollar in my pocket i decide to um to scalp those tickets so i end up scalping them i'm not even sure who i went through ended up finding a broker that scalped them for me and i think i, I made three or four grand from from those tickets so just got an envelope with some cash in it gave the tickets away and that was um I assume is illegal still to this day, but um, which I'm not sure why, but uh, your tickets, but um, ended up selling them, making some cash to the NCAA. So anyone out there listening from the NCAA, really appreciate um, getting some money out of you. So it was uh, it was pretty hard for the last two years, as I've discussed at length in episode four, five, and six, but thank you very much for that. So we then go from there, go back to Utah, 
pack my stuff up, say bye to everyone, and I'm I'm going to um, Washington DC to work out and and get ready for for the next chapter of my life, which is the NBA draft. Still kept in touch with everyone from school for the program um, even beyond that year, but um, it was hard. It was it was heartbreaking. I kind of everyone knew that I was leaving before I even announced it, but it was still a very hard announcement because you just felt like family at the University of Utah. It's still a really special place in my heart. A time that, I, like I said, I, I really really enjoyed. So ended up going back, which we'll discuss later on. My rookie year, I believe it was over All Star Weekend, had my jersey retired by the University of Utah. The number four, it's still hanging up there in the Huntsman Center, and um, one of the few players. Uh, a lot of schools have a rule around jerseys being retired. You have to graduate from school and get your degree. And I was not one of those guys. And Ray Giacoletti did me a solid and really went up to the um, athletic director in the school and was like, this guy needs to have his jersey retired. You know, he's swept every college award. He's one of the best players we've seen in college basketball in a long time. And we should be proud of that fact and really kind of kind of push the envelope to get that done. So um, couldn't be happier to have my jersey etched in folklore in in the University of Utah history books forever, but now a next chapter starts. So that will be the next um, the next episode will be the lead up to the NBA draft and everything that goes into all of that. So tune in for for that one next. We are at Rogue Bogues on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all your social media followings, or even on LinkedIn, believe it or not, um, YouTube, and then um, we're on all, all good podcast platforms. So check us out, share us. Um, hope you're getting through a lot of these My Journey um, episodes. They're doing very, very well numbers-wise with views. Um, a lot of people appreciate them. They're pretty raw. Um, at times eye-opening, but really appreciate your listening. I hope you enjoyed the Cody Figure and, and Ray Jacoletti interviews, and catch us next time.